I just chose a classic text from St. Mark's Gospel in the 11th chapter and the first 11 verses. So let's read through that. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it, and if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Gracious God, now we seek the illumination of the Holy Spirit to guide our minds and hearts through this Palm Sunday story, at the beginning of your passion We pray that you would illuminate our hearts and convict us and convince us of the truth of this passage and of this story, that we might be transformed by it in the ways that you would desire and long for us, that we may leave differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, the best and most memorable stories can become unfamiliar to us uh, simply by the fact that they're so familiar. We think we know them so well. In some ways, their familiarity makes them unfamiliar. Over time, we stop paying attention to the details because we just assume we know the story. Our perceived familiarity makes us numb. It can. It can make us numb to the real meaning of a story. Recently, I read the story of Hansel and Gretel. And um, Hansel and Gretel are children of a poor woodcutter, and their mother takes them out into the woods and abandons them there. And um, when food gets scarce, um, uh, the mother took the children into the woods, and they meet a woman who has a house made of candy, and the children go to this, follow this woman back to her house made of candy, and it turns out later that the woman's a witch. And she wants to eat them. And you might think the moral of that story is, well, don't take candy from strangers. But actually, the story is telling us something about the time in which it was written, when people were preoccupied with food and hunger during times of famine and the anxiety they felt about not being able to feed their their children. It represents a preoccupation with food and hunger. We might not pick that up if we... We're just to read through the story because we think we know the story so well. I don't know about you, but I grew up with that story. The story of Palm Sunday is also familiar to us, maybe too familiar because we've heard it so many times. 
We know that Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, that the people sing praises at the beginning of the week, and those same people ostensibly cry out for his blood and for his crucifixion at the end of the week. So I want us to kind of get maybe the, the background of the story in a way that we've just assumed, assumed that we knew, but maybe we, we, we haven't really paid attention to. So we've prepared just a short four-and-a-half-minute four and video from the Gospel Coalition for you to watch this morning to help us get a little bit, ba- little bit of background to the story of Palm Sunday. As we think about Holy Week, which we're entering into now, a lot of times we think about Palm Sunday and we think about Easter Sunday and everything in between gets a little bit fuzzy and we lose track of some of the details of what happened in the biblical storyline. We decided to ask a number of New Testament scholars if they would help us out, provide some of the historical, cultural, theological background, the sort of things that we might miss as we're reading through the story. We want to take each day of the week and try to answer some of those questions. So let's start with Sunday, Palm Sunday, March 29th, the first day of the week, first day of the Jewish week, and really the last week of Jesus' earthly life. We call it Palm Sunday because a crowd of Jesus' disciples, his followers, along with these Galilean pilgrims in town for the Passover festivities, had spread their palm branches and, and their cloaks on the ground as Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Now, most of us know at least that much of the story, but the the details, the setting, the background, how many people actually populated Jerusalem at that time? How big was it? How many people were in town visiting for the festival? And what were they expecting from the coming Messiah? And what made this situation in particular, Jesus' actions, so volatile for the Jewish and the Roman leaders? Jerusalem was a very exciting place about this time of the year. Uh, Passover is one of the great pilgrimage festivals for the Jewish people. And so a city that people estimate might have been around 40,000 would uh, sometimes get to be six times that size at that time of the year as Jews flocked in from everywhere. It was a very exciting place, a busy place, a crowded place, and a place that the Romans really worried about during that week because all of these Jews were gathering together, they were excited about their religion, and the Romans wanted to keep control of that, so they were extra watchful of the Jews during that time. The way Jesus entered the city, mounted on a a donkey, uh, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah that, that the Messianic king would enter the city of Jerusalem exactly in this way, uh, it was very significant. It also emulated the way Solomon, King Solomon, entered the city when he was declared king. So the the message, uh, you know, visually uh, and spiritually was unmistakable that here the Messianic king came to enter God's holy city, Jerusalem. The crowds responded uh, with uh, excitement because they Many of them had heard about the Messiah and were expecting a national deliverer. 
to reestablish the Davidic kingdom. And so Jesus is one who taught with authority, uh, far exceeding their other religious teachers, is one who healed, who even raised the dead, very much looked like the part of the Messiah. And so they welcomed him and, and, and prepared uh, the way for him uh, as the Davidic king entering the holy city of Jerusalem. Jesus was entering into a very volatile situation then, and we could well understand how his entry into the city and some of the things that happened that week would have created a lot of concern for both Jews and Romans. Romans who wanted to keep the lid on things, but the Jewish authorities who wanted to keep a good reputation with Rome as well. They didn't want to let things get out of hand either because they wanted to keep good relationships with Rome. And so it was a very pressurized situation for Jesus and his disciples uh, during that, that week of uh, what was called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, culminating in Passover. Thank you. Well, I actually have nothing else on my notes. That was it, so we can, we can leave now. I'm kidding. Um, well, uh, I hope the video is able to communicate uh, what we wanted it to, which is just a little bit of background and kind of the idea that Jesus thrust himself into a powder keg and essentially lit a match. I hope that you got that from that video. Jesus thrust himself into uh, the tension that existed around Jerusalem at that time during the Passover as the city was swelling with thousands of pilgrims. And this was the pilgrimage, the Passover, to end all pilgrimages. It was the end of the road, Passover time in the city of God. This was it. This was the most important festival of the year. And it was the end of the road for Jesus also, because this would be the end of his ministry and the end of his life. The time had come, the climax of his message was about to take place. He must be killed. What other possible reason could there be for Jesus to do something so incendiary, so provocative, except that he knew it would get him killed? And before, Jesus had refused past attempts by the crowds to make him king. But now, he allows it. The timing is right. It's destined to raise the stakes to a fever pitch. During the Passover, God delivered the Israelites from their exile in Egypt under the cruel taskmasters of the Egyptians. Most of us know the story in Exodus where God swoops down in a miraculous and supernatural demonstration of his power and delivers his people. The Passover we've talked about recently in recent weeks was a time when God told the people to put the blood of a lamb on the doorposts. And when the angel of death swooped down into Egypt, homes with the blood on the doorposts, the angel would pass over and not strike the firstborn of that household. And so this celebration was the celebration without equal of God's power to deliver his people. And around this time, there were so many expectations of national deliverance and messianic hope that a deliverer would come. But for them, their new hope was that God would send a deliverer to free them from the oppression of a new regime, 
not the Egyptians, but the Romans. And so talk of a Messiah king ruler was always elevated at this time. And it's in this expectation, in this hope and in this tension and in this um, atmosphere that Jesus enters Jerusalem. Now we call this the triumphal entry, but Jesus' emotions were anything but triumphant elation. You know, the gospel writers tell us that Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem, and when he crests the hill and sees the city emerge in his vision, he weeps over it. So he's not feeling excitement, he's feeling sadness. Luke 19 says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes and the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Another version says, because you did not recognize the day of God's visitation. He knew their praises would be short-lived. He knew their coronation of him was a false coronation. They They were coronating a different kind of king than the one that Jesus was because he knew he wasn't the Messiah they were hoping for. He knew their fickle hearts would turn against him in just a matter of days, and he knew what had waited him, and he also knew what awaited them for rejecting him. He knew all of this, and he knew he would be rejected and judged as a blasphemer by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish courts, and the Pharisees and the scribes, and by Herod, the king of Israel. But before they pass judgment on him, he's going to pass judgment on them. The entry into Jerusalem in Mark's gospel ends with this statement in verse 11. It says, And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts, and he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's a weird way to finish the, the story of the triumphal entry, isn't it? Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts, he looks around, What's going on? And then he goes home? Well, one theologian has observed that Jesus was essentially casing the place. He's identifying his target and the location of his prophetic declaration of judgment on the religious system in Israel. You know, on 9-11, the targets were carefully chosen. The Twin Towers in New York City weren't just meant to maximize the loss of life, but they, were, they represented economic America's economic might. And the Pentagon was the headquarters of America's military might, carefully chosen targets. The White House, which was the intended target of Flight 93, which was thwarted by its passengers, was the heartbeat of America's political power. They weren't just targets, but they were symbols meant to inflict a psychological impact. Jesus targets the temple because it's the very heartbeat of Israel and its religion. And I want to just give you the preview of the events of the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion 
because sometimes during this time of year, those things get lost. In fact, from this Sunday to next Sunday, there are a whole lot of things that happened in the New Testament and in the gospel stories, you can read through that. In fact, St. John's Gospel, from about the 12th chapter on, deals with this whole situation of the last week of Jesus' life. But I'm going to summarize for us right now. And so on Sunday night, which is March 25th, in the Hebrew calendar, it's the month of Nisan, the 10th, Jesus spends the night in Bethany. On Monday, he leaves Bethany, curses the fig tree on the way into the city, weeps over Jerusalem, cleanses the temple. On Tuesday, he sees the fig tree withered. He takes possession of the temple for a whole day and pronounces woes on his enemies. He leaves the city and then predicts Jerusalem's destruction. On Wednesday, he has a controversial exchange with the leaders of Israel, predicts in two days' time he'll be crucified on the Passover, and Judas plans his betrayal. On Thursday, his disciples prepare for Passover. He eats meal, the Passover meal with the 12 and washes the disciples' feet and then institutes the Lord's Supper. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he agonizes over his death, sweating drops of blood, and is betrayed by Judas and arrested. On Friday, he's indicted by the high priest and condemned by the Sanhedrin on the charge of blasphemy. He's tried by Pilate, then tried by Herod, taken back to Pilate again, and it's here that the crowds call for his death, saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. He's flogged, he's beaten, spit upon, and mocked by the Romans, forced to carry his own cross, and is crucified on the hill Calvary. On Saturday, he lies in the grave, and on Sunday, he rises from the dead. Now, those are the events. That's the story of the week of Jesus' passion. That's the narrative. Now, what else can we say about this? Well, something that we should not miss is the absolute deliberation with which God chose his actions in the life of Jesus. Everything is planned on God's timetable. Nothing is an accident. Nothing is by chance or random. Nothing happens uh, on accident or is happenstance. It is all in God's plan. It is all in Jesus' plan. But the people, including the disciples, didn't get it. They didn't get that this was fulfillment from the prophecy of Daniel, the ninth chapter, about verses 22 to 27. Some of you remember Daniel's prophetic 69 and 70 prophetic weeks. Exactly 483 years to the day from the time of the decree the decree to rebuild the temple by Adaxerxes, the king, in 445 B.C., 69 weeks of years, which is 483 years to the arrival of the time of Messiah. And if you do the calendar work on that, 483 years, which is 69 prophetic weeks, which is 69 sevens, 69 sevens, seven-year periods, land you 483 years later, right on this day that Jesus enters Jerusalem, the day that Jesus came into the city on his triumphal entry, what we call Palm Sunday. And God's timing is perfect down to the clearest detail. The people hadn't noticed it, but I assure you, 
All of the heavenly hosts were paying attention to it. And no matter how many times we've heard this story, we still hold out a little hope that this time it might be different. And we know Jesus had to die at the hands of sinful men, but did it have to be at the hands of the Jews, his own people? They missed what God was doing through Jesus because they thought they knew the story that God was telling. Redemption in their minds meant one thing, a decisive military campaign reminiscent of the stories of old. Moses and the Red Sea, the Egyptians defeated. Joshua's siege of Jericho, the walls came down. David and Goliath, the Philistines, cut and run. But God was now telling a different story, a story that they thought they knew. But it's a story that really went back to the original story. And the story begins and ends with a decisive victory against sin. It was sin that entered the creation. Sin brought injustice and hatred. And sin created the suffering we see in the world. And like the people of Israel in the first century, sin can corrupt those who even claim to know God, the very God they think they serve. Redemption and salvation came through the renewal of the soul and the defeat of Satan's power, the defeat of sin's power of guilt and shame. They thought they knew the story so well, they missed the most important part, peace with heaven. They were telling a story of exclusion, and he was telling a story of embrace. They were telling a story of hostility, and he was telling a story of grace. This time of year, we're meant to connect to our faith by thinking backwards into the past, to a week in history where God defeated the wickedness of the world by letting sin do its worst to him. Are we missing the most important part of the story? Sometimes we become bored and numb to the story of the gospel because we think we know it so well, but in reality, we've missed the most important details. We think we know the story because it's so familiar to us, but in reality, we've maybe neglected what the story is really all about. And so if you find yourself this morning maybe numb or bored with the story, maybe you're not reading the right story. Maybe you're not believing the right story. This time of year, we're meant to connect to our faith by remembering that God's act of redemption came through an act of divine vulnerability to the powers of this age. And in absorbing the evil and violence of this world, Jesus revealed the deceitfulness and wickedness of the powers of this age and the powers that be. He allowed the forces of darkness, the forces of Satan, to inflict their worst on him and through death defeated death. And that's the God we come to know through Jesus. A God whose might was demonstrated in suffering love. Now you may think, wait a minute, wait a minute. This whole time you've been talking about suffering love? That can escape us when we're paying attention sometimes to the things we shouldn't be or paying attention to the wrong things 
We want something from the gospel, the story of Jesus that maybe we're not intended to receive. What we're intended to receive is God's suffering love that liberates us, captives to sin. I hope that's the story you're paying attention to this week. As we come into Easter and prepare our hearts for Good Friday on Friday and Easter morning on Sunday, that we meditate on the fact that God absorbed the evil of this world in his Son and defeated it through that suffering love. Let's pray.